Gyro Nation Metal. Welcome back to Gyro Nation Metal. As always, my name is Jeff and I'll be your host. Joshua Wood is a metal aficionado from Calgary, Alberta. Over the past 25 plus years, he has amassed over 1,000 metal-based publications, including books, magazines, and DVDs, which has allowed him to exponentially increase his knowledge base around one of the most diverse music genres in the world. Joshua was put on the map after he created the world's first metal-based board game called Mental Metal Meltdown. In his 40-plus years involved with the metal world, he has been a metal radio DJ for over 20 years for CJSW 90.9 FM. He's currently a managing editor. Josh is a current managing editor for MetalRules.com, a former judge for the Juno Awards, the current chair for the Heavy Metal Committee at the Canadian Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, and a current Factor Grand Judge, among so many others. Joshua, thank you for joining me. Thank you. My pleasure to be here, of course. <laughs> I'm really happy that we finally got together. It's been a couple months, but uh, work finally lined up for us both. And yeah, yeah, I can't wait to pick your brain. A couple false starts, but here we are, ready to chat metal shop and have a drink. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'd certainly appreciate it. I'm, you've done so much in the metal world. So like, first things first, I want to know, actually, before we start with the chat, I just want to give a uh, shout out to our friend Nick, who actually made this introduction possible. Oh yeah, Nick, what a great guy. We worked together uh, a number of years ago and, and he was always my uh, my rock and my sidekick and uh, yeah, it was so great that he could mutually introduce us and now we have two new uh, metal brothers. <laughs> it's awesome and uh, Nick's a great guy. He hasn't changed one bit. So now jumping to your side of things, I couldn't include everything that you've done in the intro or else we'd be here for probably a day or so. What was your introdu- introduction to metal like and what drew you in? Kiss. Easily. Kiss, you know, uh, I'm six, seven years old. And, you know, it might seem odd because now if you, in a lens of 2020, you look at Kiss, you think all these old guys and they're kind of cheesy with the wigs and the makeup and all that. But if you put yourself in context of 1976, right, you're listening to radio and it's Don and the Supremes, Bee Gees, ABBA, John Denver, and along comes Gene Simmons, God of Thunder with his freaking boots and bat wings and spitting fire and breathing blood and singing God of Thunder. It's like, oh, just warped my fragile little mind on the spot. So Kiss Destroyer was instantly my gateway into, into rock music. And uh, being a child of the 70s, it was sort of um, everywhere. You know, you had your Zeppelins and Sabbath and Deep Purple and all those guys on the radio. So that was just the evolution of my being a music fan into the heavier side of things. Hmm. And then it was just like pretty much a rabbit hole from then on in. A hundred percent. And even not even so much a rabbit hole because the, the genre was being built, you know, in the late seventies, there was, you know, a few dozen hard rock, heavy metal bands. So when you're in on the ground floor, you can see it evolves. Like, Hey, here's this new band called quiet riot or you know at the time it's like oh let's check out these guys they have a new record out you know that sort of thing so it was following the evolution of the genre from almost day one and did you ever expect at that point when you were finally getting interested in this that it would blossom into what it has today i don't think so you know i mean i always knew i liked rock music i grew up in a musical family my folks listened to country jazz pop classical opera so fairly well-rounded that way, but I was drawn to the heavier, more aggressive side of, of pop and rock music and it and evolved from that point. And uh, I think it was probably in my late teens when I really started to think, yeah, man, this, this is my thing. This is not a phase. 
I'm spending all my time thinking about this, all my money. I'm not buying comic books and going to the arcade. I'm buying tape, tapes and records, you know. So that started to say, yeah, I'm a metalhead. You know, modern people say self-identify, right? It's like, okay, I started <laughs> to self-identify as a metalhead kind of in the mid-80s. <laughs> Other than, like, the hard music and the imagery on stage, like, were you drawn to the artwork or the lyrics or anything all else specifically? Yeah. All of it. The complete package, the live visual presence, the lyrics, a lot of the lyrics are about rebellion and strength and power and independent independence, individuality. And all, a lot of those speak to me, spoke to me as a young man saying, I want to do my own thing, be my own person, not even necessarily be a rebel, but just say, I'm going to walk my own path. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the lyrics spoke to that. And then of course, growing up in the age of, uh, early horror movies and Dungeons and Dragons and stuff. Of course, the album covers are awesome. You know, guys with swords and chicks with big boobs and monsters and everything. It's like, oh yeah, this is, this is speaking my language right here. <laughs> well, like we chatted about comics just before the show here, like Savage, Savage Sword of Conan the Barbarian had totally. basically album cover-esque uh, imagery on it. Conan's totally metal. <laughs> it's insane. And actually... I can't remember the artist's name, but he's done a lot of fantasy work for Conan the Savage Sword and also a lot of metal um, metal oh, covers. Uh, Yusko? Possibly. Frazetta, maybe. Think of Frank Frazetta. I think it's Frazetta, yeah. Yeah, Frazetta. So. Ken, Ken Kelly, of course, doing all the Kiss album covers, mm. or some of them, Manowar album covers, you know, those big muscle sword guys, Ken Kelly, Frank Frazetta. Yeah, fancy mm. uh, sci-fi art, just it meshes so perfectly. It does. And then, like, you had... Um, Sirith Ungol, if I pronounce that properly, they took yep. a lot of um, different artwork that was already created, but all fantasy based. It was pretty, and they, gorgeous they did something covers. from gorgeous, beautiful, Forgotten Realms, like the Dungeons and Dragons series as well, right? Totally. On a little quick sidebar, my kids are watching Stranger Things. Yeah, and some buddies have recommended say, Josh, this is going to be your thing, and I'm watching the show. These kids playing D and D. It's like that was me, man, sitting in the basement <laughs> holding a freaking twenty sided dice. <laughs> What's awesome to see is that game is still going hard, and it, I I think I it's more popular now than it ever has been. It's crazy. It's crazy. I I have some adult friends who play, and I'm like, I'm not quite there to go back and play it yet, but it's still a lot of fun. The nostalgia factor. Mm -hmm, totally, and especially if you've had like a long long campaign going. Um, I have friends and uh, family members who have been doing the same campaign basically for years on end. Yeah, it's so fun. Like, what a great hobby. And you really don't need need much other than your imagination and some dice, really. Totally, totally. So there's our plug for D and D. <laughs> what is it? TSR. Sorry. Sorry, Andrew. Was it TSR? Still owns D and D? Do they? They owe us. Uh, they owe us some royalty money for our plug. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of board games, so Mental Metal Meltdown. So how did you get in? How did? Hmm, there's a few questions in here, but first of all, sure. like, why did you want to create a board game about metal? Well, it's funny, you know, I was, um, I had a, this big collection and I, I wanted to get involved, more involved in the industry somehow. I wasn't sure how, but somehow. And my wife says, you have all this knowledge rattling around in your head. Why don't you do something with it? I'm like, yeah. So originally I thought about writing a book, The History mm -hmm. of Heavy Metal. However, there's a couple of really detailed encyclopedias about metal. Now, this was around late 90s you know, a little bit pre-internet. So uh, 
those books already existed and I didn't think I can improve or add anything based on my knowledge. So I thought, well, what? I like board games. I like Trivial Pursuit. I grew up playing board games as a kid with a busy family. So I thought, well, let's make a game out of it. So I started to do the research and development and raise money and eventually it evolved to become what it is today. Hmm. And so how did you end up raising the funds necessary to, um, I, get, I guess, get the things together and distribute it? Uh, friends and family and some private investors, basically. I, okay. I would I took, approach it quite seriously. I went to uh, lending agencies and I would put together presentations, say, we're going to develop this board game. We have a marketing strategy. We have a plan. Uh, here's what our expectations are. And uh, so then you can approach people and say, there's an investment opportunity and you sell them and they say, yeah, this is a good idea. Hmm. And how many different companies did you have to present to before somebody wanted in? Well, I think we had seven main investors. Okay. So not a huge amount. And it was just people I knew through the community or through work or hobbies or friends or whatever. And, you know, the bank of mom and dad threw in some money, all this <laughs> kind of stuff. So it all worked out in the end. And then obviously things were a lot different because you didn't have things like Kickstarter. You didn't have like worldwide distribution at the click of a button. So what were That's some of true. the biggest challenges getting this out into the world? That was some of the challenges, definitely distribution and marketing. Um, you know, I'd, I'd go to a store with a coffee and say, here's the free coffee. Will your mm. store carry this? And they go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I walk to the next store. Will your store carry this? Okay. So it, uh, it took a while to do to do that because, you, again, you didn't have Patreon or Kickstarter or any of those mm -hmm. things. So it was a lot of legwork, but it was also a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And is that something that's still being sold today or is that something that was more of a limited run? It was limited. We did 2,500 copies of the initial pressing. Mm -hmm. And I still have, uh, much to the chagrin of my wife, we still have a few hundred clogging up our storage in our basement area. So there's still copies available. But yeah, it's uh, it's one run and done. Oh, that's cool. So it's a little, it's a collector's item and it's out of date, but it's still a nostalgia piece for some folks from just 20 years ago now. Well, I mean, they all are in, in some way or another. You look at the different versions of Monopoly and you can go back to when it started and you can have fun with any version. Oh, totally. And very few board games make it. I'll, I'll tell you this quick story. When I first started to develop the game, I talked to a board game manufacturer and they said, don't do it. I said, what do you mean? Aren't you trying to promote games? They said, it's probably not going to work. We say we get a thousand ideas a year, maybe 100 ever go to a prototype phase. Of those 100, only 10 will ever get manufactured distribution in stores. And of those, only one will ever go to a reprint. And then you're in the Monopoly and Sorry League. And I didn't get there, <laughs> to be blunt. <laughs> so we did it, but it just like didn't didn't take off, right? For whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Trivial Pursuit. So is it more of like a Trivial Pursuit type game? Definitely. It's a very trivial okay. pursuit dice game. Roll the dice, move your guy around the, the, the board and you land on a question. It'll say, you know, who was the lead singer of Van Halen or what was Saxon's fifth album or whatever the question might be. Different levels of difficulty. So, yeah, very much trivia based. How long did it take you to come up with all the questions and the different levels? About a year. Yeah. And we beta tested it and talked to some of my metal nerd friends and made sure all the facts were correct. I, there's still some cringeworthy mistakes in there. Oh, no. But um, that happens, right? That's true. Hey, you could have kept it going with different expansions. Well, I'll tell you, you know, we actually wrote a few expansion questions, and we could talk about the board game all night, but I'll give you one classic example of a mistake. Is One of the questions is, who's the lead singer or creator? Mm -hmm. 
which is melee, right? Everybody knows that. But at the time I was listening to Creator's first album when I wrote that question and half the songs are sung by Ventor, the drummer. So I'm writing my questions. Who's the lead singer of Creator? Oh, Ventor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it goes in the game. It's like, no, he's saying like five <laughs> songs out of like 30 albums or whatever. <laughs> oh, what a stupid mistake, right? <laughs> Would you get bonus points for getting that right then? I guess so. Yeah. I said, if you, if you get bonus points for the, all the mistakes I made. so. <laughs> <laughs> and so you said you're on your 23rd year of hosting at CJSW 90.9. And that yes, was the indeed. same year that Mental Metal, De- Metal, Jesus, again, Mental Metal Meltdown came out. It's a tongue right. twister, isn't it? It is. That's almost one of the regrets. The name almost <laughs> so doesn't trip off the tongue too nicely. I probably could have just called it Metal Meltdown or something a little simpler. But but uh, yeah, radio was uh, also, like I said, I really had a big push. I wanted to get into the industry. So uh, mm-hmm. I took my prototype of my board game to the local heavy metal radio show mm-hmm. in Calgary, Alberta, where I live. Uh, it's on CGSW 90.9, and the program is called Megawatt Mayhem. And I took it to the host and said, hey, I have this idea for a game. And I showed it and he interviewed me and we chatted about it. And after the show, he said, hey, I'm kind of looking for a new co-host. Why don't we chat? So we we got to chatting and became friends. I did the volunteer component and he said, why don't you be my new co-host? So both of those things were kind of inextricably intertwined at the same Mm -hmm. time. So the game and uh, the radio all came together at the same time. And was that the time that you realized that this is what I want to be a career. Like I want to be involved in music, but not like on the music side of things. Yes. I think that's when it all started to come together. And that's also roughly around the same time that I started to work for metalrules.com as well, mm. which was in its infancy at that point. But I also knew, you know, modestly that I had no taste or talent in music. So I wasn't going to be a performer. Um, and I also felt that I wanted this to be a, a hobby and be involved, but not my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had different aspirations to have a different career, you know, maybe make a bit more money. I didn't, sounds terrible, but I didn't want to be just like a headbanger my whole life. I wanted a career and family and stability, and then I could have more money to buy more metal records, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't think this was going to be a full-time career. And even now people say, oh, why don't you uh, monetize? It's like, it's not really what I'm interested in. I love doing this. I, I speak to some of my metal colleagues who have monetized their metal career and they say they're burned out. They're tired. They don't want to do it anymore because eight hours a day they think and talk and do metal and then they don't go home and listen to their favorite records. I'm like, mm. I don't want to be like that. I want to listen to my favorite old Motley Crue record when I'm 80 years old, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and if you start to turn it into a job, there's the danger of it becoming just a job and less of your passion. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I was very aware of that. So, uh, I sort of capped myself with my various projects and helping people and doing the things that I enjoy where I still go home at the end of every day and go, yeah, I want to have a beer and rock out to an awesome CD. Definitely. I don't think there's anything better. I love plugging in a new album, not even a new album, just an album in general, whether it be working out, driving, like cleaning around the house, doesn't even matter anything. Oh, exactly. But if you're getting paid to say, I got to listen to this record, it becomes laborious maybe. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Especially if you're trying to pick out every little thing that each album has, you're doing constant reviews. Like you're kind of listening to it for a different reason than just pleasure. Exactly. Exactly. You've been not only the co-host of Megawatt Mayhem, but now you're the sole uh, solo host. That's right. Um, Kevin the, founded the show in 85. I joined in 99. And then after 30 years, he retired. He said, I'm done. 
and I took over the reins. This was back in uh, late 2016. So I've been doing it ever since as a solo host. Um, so now, yeah, 23 years or whatever it is coming up. Wow. Was there much of a difference going from two hosts to a single one? Yes. Uh, I kind of retooled the show. Um, as much as I hate to say it, over time, the relationship between my former host and I just sort of degenerated a little bit. We just had different ideas of how we wanted the show to be. Mm-hmm. I found that he was becoming a, l- a little tired, a little burned out in the industry, and I still had a lot of enthusiasm and energy. So it evolved a bit more from a, a talk format with two hosts talking about, you know, sometimes there'd be sports or politics or metal issues and things like that. So that the talk aspect of it definitely went away and it became more of a musical show. So mm-hmm. I play a lot more, uh, just a lot more music now and talk about bands and things like this rather than just the metal scene in general. Okay, fair enough. And that probably keeps it fresh instead of laborious. Well, yeah, I mean, this is just such a little example, but we would do concert, local concert listings, right? And sometimes that would take 20 minutes of the show just to list all the local bands that were playing. And I was thinking we could have played three or four songs, you know, and con- everything's online now. It, by this is we're talking by the year... 2015 all the concert listings are online we're not the old rock station saying hey we have the first big new concert announcement everybody already knows what the concert is we don't need to belabor it so it's just like let's move away from that old style rock station and get more focused on the fans on the international audience and just more about here's some cool new underground bands that maybe you haven't heard mm-hmm so on Mega What Mayhem, do you go, uh, do you kind of explore all genres of metal or do you kind of stick to the more, I don't want to say popular necessarily, but kind of like the heavy metal side of things? Definitely. It's, uh, there's, we do all the core genres, you know, um, partly because of my personal taste. There's not a lot of new metal or rap metal or that kind of stuff, but definitely we'll do everything from the seventies to an album that just came out yesterday. We'll do everything from melodic hard rock, the glam, all the way up to, you know, brutal grindcore and everything in between and a lot of different themes. So it might be, you know, tonight's going to be, hey, folk metal night. And we just do like two or three hours of folk metal. Or then we might do uh, all tonight, all the songs about, um, I don't know, swords or something. We're going to do 10 power metal songs about swords or something, you know, (laughs) just uh, just go crazy but it definitely has the core focus of the true metal thrash death metal power metal traditional metal you know that kind of core stuff nice so there's a good variety oh definitely for you what goes into ensuring longevity and maybe uh, keeping a consistent listener base or expanding that base well it, that's a good question uh radio has definitely evolved over time especially with podcasts so when the show started it was very calgary based at a small university radio station. So the audience was Calgary. Mm-hmm. But now, the because we podcast, the world is our audience. So I've expanded that to say, I am going to play, do a tribute to Japanese heavy metal bands tonight and play all, all Japanese bands. Oh, that's cool. Uh, maybe on their national holiday, say, hey, all my fans in Japan or something like that. Mm-hmm. So to expand the listener base, it's been neutral. Is the best way to describe it. We've lost listeners in the terrestrial radio market because people don't sit and listen to the radio very much anymore, especially at 2 a.m. 
on a Saturday night in Calgary, Alberta. Fair enough. However, the podcast has expanded massively worldwide. So mm-hmm. now we have people listening all over the world. So I I don't say, you know, hey, it's uh, Saturday night and it's raining in Calgary and the weather is this and the local sports team won that. Because the guy in Japan on Friday night when he's listening or Saturday night, he doesn't care, right, about that. So we say, hey, here's what we're doing. So it's more of a broad appeal, broader audience, more genres, more styles, things like that. Well, and again, that opens you up to a little bit more things that you can play in a little bit more uh, maybe thematic nights or thematic shows. We're huge on themes. I do themes constantly. Almost every week, there's some sort of theme. Even the nights where I just play all new material, I call it the cutting edge of metal. Mm-hmm. And we'll just play, here's 30 new bands that maybe you're not familiar with. Maybe you are, but let's check it out. Here's this great new band. I'm not I'm not judging. You get to be the judge. Do you like it or not? Here it is, thud. <laughs> what are some of the best lessons that you've learned as a radio host over the years? I'm sure there's been a, quite a few. Never underestimate the intelligence and the knowledge of your audience. You don't want to talk down to them. I uh, don't want to lecture them. You want to speak like a colleague, like a friend, like a fellow metal fan. Mm-hmm. I'll make a mistake on air and someone will phone and correct you instantly. It's like, no, that wasn't Megadeth's third album. That was their fourth album. What are you talking about? You know, are you even a Megadeth fan? You know, <laughs> Like, oops, sorry. <laughs> so be prepared, talk knowledgeably, um, but don't talk down to people. Say, hey, you like Slayer? I like Slayer. Let's hear some Slayer. You know, it's that fun. It's that easy. And if you're wrong, there's nothing bad about admitting it. You're like, oh, yeah, I did fuck that up. I meant fourth, but I'm an idiot. So <laughs> totally, totally. We all, we all make mistakes and preparation is a big part of it. Uh, one thing I found when the other host was drifting away, he losing enthusiasm for preparation and the mistakes starting to happen and just lack of enthusiasm. So I try to pick up that slack and say, I, I'm not going to make those mistakes. I'm going to try to sound knowledgeable, but uh, engaged, I guess, for lack of a better term. Being engaged is definitely important, especially when you're trying to, um, you're trying to talk with people with like your charisma and your energy. And if you're not feeling it, they're not going to be feeling it. Absolutely. Yeah. Enthusiasm and energy is important. And I'll admit it. There's some, some of those nights, like my show runs from midnight to 3 AM mm-hmm. Mountain standard time here in Calgary. So there'll be nights when I, it's 11 o'clock and I'm scraping the ice off the snow and, and the car off the car in February and it's minus 30 and I'm driving to the station. I'm like, man, this, this isn't all that fun. This part of it. Yeah. But you get to the station and you have a beer. It's like, Oh, we got the new, you know, freaking Metallica single. Let's, let's do it. This is going to be an awesome show. Mm-hmm. Right. And that energy and enthusiasm comes through all of a sudden. So it's gotta be kind of relaxing too, just to be able to sit there, listen to music. And then you're kind of like, you're by yourself, but you're also with a community. Oh, very much so. The phone rings, people send texts and messages I'm on Facebook and have my feet up and have a beer listening on the big speakers in the studio, which blow away anything I've got at home. So it's just like, oh, this is kind of fun. It's my quiet time. <laughs> you sent me a picture of your metal library, so to speak. So um, oh, yeah. as I stated in the intro, uh, they boast over, sorry, it boasts over 1,000 publications and your musical library eclipses that at approximately 23,000 items over physical and digital media. So how do you organize these and how do you keep track of everything? Wow, good question. There's two things I'll talk about there. So in terms of tracking, I have an Excel spreadsheet. I, yeah. I started with a handwritten list when I was, I don't know, 10 years old. And it was like bands I have, 
albums I want, bands I want to check out. I still have it, like tucked away in a folder somewhere, you know, little kid writing. Yeah. And then I started typing it on a typewriter. And then eventually it became an Excel spreadsheet. And it's massive now. I printed it out about five years ago. It's like 900 pages long, like <laughs> in this four inch binder. <laughs> It's so obsolete, right? Because I can just go on any <laughs> any metal database, like it's all there, right? <laughs> but uh, updating that daily helped build a knowledge base. Mm-hmm. So I track what I have, what I want, what I'm interested in. People do the same on their Discogs account or their iTunes account, things like that. So there's lots of great ways to track. Uh, I found just the Excel spreadsheet. I started it, you know, 20 years ago, and that's I've stuck with it since. I'm always making mistakes. I'll buy it. I buy it, go to a store and say, Oh, I want that record. And I come home. It's like, Oh damn, I already bought that. (laughs) (laughs) I do that with groceries all the time. My wife, I know it's my ass sometimes. I'm like, I got more toilet paper. She's like, we don't need any more fucking toilet paper. (laughs) Don't need any more. And then sometimes I I think, was that album that good? If I forgot that I owned it, that I bought it again, but you have that enthusiasm. It's like, do I own this? Yeah, I I gotta have it. It's like, Oh, I already now have two copies. So I'll give one to a friend or whatever. (laughs) At this point, you must be like, you must have such a complete library that when you do find something that you miss, you're probably excited about it. I do. You know, what's one of my real enjoyments in life is just digging around the stores. It's very old school, mm-hmm. buying physical copies. But I was even at a store in town here called Turn It Up mm-hmm. uh, on Center Street today for our local listeners. And they're having a sale this week, 50% off CDs. I'm like, I'm there. And I went wow. and I found some cool little stuff little gaps in the collection. Oh, I don't have that. I want that for, for inexpensive. And I, I've spent many, many hours over the years all over North America, just scouring through used record stores, pawn shops saying, Hey, Oh, cool. I found this rare album that I've wanted and I got it for five bucks. It's like a little, the thrill of the chase, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So do you collect different editions of each album or do you, is it like one and done? Pretty much one and done. There's a few bands my elite bands that I love and I'll buy, you know, special editions, but it's pretty rare because there's so much material. I'd rather buy, you know, 10 albums by 10 different bands than 10 copies, little variations of master of puppets, you know, the Mm. vinyl, the cassette, the CD, the reissue, the Brazilian pressing. It's like, no, I'd rather support more bands broadly so there's those few half dozen bands, which, yeah, I'll buy the greatest hits or the double live album or the compilation for that one bonus track. But for the most part, it's just like, I just want the album. And I say album old school, right? I mean the CD or whatever. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. That's pretty cool. But we were talking about books for a second. Mm-hmm. I'm just babbling now. No, that's totally fine. Yeah, the books was an interesting thing because when this cycles back to what we were talking about earlier, wanting to get into the industry. Mm-hmm. And there was the, the website, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, the radio show, the board game. And I was thinking, what could I do that m- stands apart from a lot of these other websites and fans? I wasn't really conscious, but I'm thinking, w- what area hasn't been explored? And I started to think about metal publishing because books were the metal books were just starting to be published. And I just started buying them as they came out. And all of a sudden I've got 20, 30, 40 books about metal. And it's like, I like reading about these bands. I like learning about these bands. And now I have this great little library and it just kept growing and growing and growing. So then one day we started a book review section on the website. I said, I'm just going to review every book I can get my hands on. So here we are today. 
in tandem with that, you were um, you, you were Canadian representative of Rock Detector. Sorry, uh, let me see. Rock That's Detector. Right. Yeah, the world's largest online heavy metal database until 2010. So including the database, you contributed and helped in all of their nine genre-specific encyclopedias about metal and uh, that was put out by the group. Uh, you've put right. together, you've contributed to books, articles, radio programs, and you're a guest lecturer at Mount Royal. Yep, yep. Just uh, I like talking about metal. I mean, it's fun and easy. This Rock Detector site was interesting. Before Metal Archives, there was Rock Detector, mm -hmm. and a journalist um, by the name of Gary Sharp Young, who was a, a well-known uh, British rock metal journalist in London, he. Uh, created this website quite early, quite an early adapter this would have been mid 90s when the internet's really starting to get going mm -hmm. i mean obviously we all knew the internet was around for military applications and university uh share information sharing groups for years and years before that before but before people started making their own websites they he was an early innovator and he said i'm going to make a big metal database but the, the digital connectivity wasn't there yet. So he would solicit writers from every country. So he'd have a couple of American experts, a couple of British experts, a couple of German experts. And record labels would send their material to those experts who then would add it into the database. Mm. And so at one point, I think it was like, a, you know, 100,000 entries in Rock Detector about metal bands. And uh, so eventually it just kept growing and evolving. But unfortunately, what happened is that the owner, Gary Sharp, died. He just, uh, Gary Sharp Young died one day, just instantly. Um, a brain aneurysm, dropped dead on the floor of his home. Jesus. And that kind of kiboshed a lot of it, uh, took mm -hmm. a lot of the wind out of the sails. And at that point, Metal Archives was up and coming, and they had some great technology and a lot of enthusiasm as well for a public. Ours was kind of private, only the regional people could submit information to make sure it was accurate mm. and metal archives said, well, we're going to make it public. Anyone can submit anything. So they grew very quickly, but the downside was there's a lot of incorrect information on their database, right? Because just any, any kid can add anything and it's not really vetted very well. So but that's okay. It's just apples and oranges in the styles, how you do it. I mean, from my experience, and I haven't been on there a lot, and I don't dive into the forums or anything, but most of it is relatively accurate. There are some misconceptions, like even uh, with a couple of the band members that I've chatted with, some of the dates are wrong or some of the albums are wrong. However, most of the information that I've encountered seems to be okay. But like you guys said, you had oh, yeah. region-specific experts, so you guys were all, like, each region was kind of fact-checking each other. Exactly. And one of the advantages of the Metal Archive system now is the public fact-checking, just like Wikipedia. If someone mm -hmm. puts something up that's wrong, someone will say, hey, wait a sec, I'm not sure. And then the moderators will check it, and then it becomes accurate. So mm -hmm. that's that's a good way to do it in that sense. Well, in that way, it's the same as them calling you or messaging you at the radio show. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So now instead of me getting a paper press release saying, here's the new Overkill album, uh, it's just instantly online, and people just drop it into the, their fields and populate the fields, and there it is, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. So when you were uh, working with Rock Detector, were you also working for Metal Rules? Uh, they were pretty concurrent. Okay. Uh, they were pretty concurrent at the time. I actually applied to Rock Detector, and initially I was declined. 
Hmm. They said, no, nah, we're not, that's not quite what we're looking for. And I was disappointed, but that's okay. It's, you know, you, you move on. Yep. But then a few months later, they contacted me again and said, well, actually, we re- just reread your Annihilator biography because they said, send us a sample. So I wrote a biography of Annihilator. And I said, it's actually pretty good. Why don't you come on board? I'm like, okay, thanks. So that was a lot of fun. And then over time, because this was right on the cusp again of internet becoming all-encompassing, Mm-hmm. They were still publishing books. So they published, you know, those half a dozen or eight books that were genre specific and they're massive. They're like 400 page encyclopedias. Here's the power metal A to Z. Here's death mm-hmm. metal A to Z. Here's black metal A to Z. And they're totally obsolete and out of date now, right? But yeah. at the time that was cutting edge knowledge. Like here it is. This is metal right there. <laughs> kind of working with Rock Detector there. How did you go about like submitting for the encyclopedias? Did you know that they were planning on publishing or... Was it something that they approached you about? A bit of both. Uh, they said, you know, we're thinking of publishing a book on, uh, you know, uh, they were called the A to Z series. So mm-hmm. the A to okay. Z of Power Metal or whatever. So they said, we're doing the Power Metal book. Here's the here's this um, manuscript or the, uh, what's the word I'm struggling for? Not the template, the early version, the draft. Yeah, okay. And let's do some fact checking and go through it and see if we can add bands or take out bands or discuss bands. So it was definitely involved in the editing process. Mm. And so they would just draw the information from the database that existed and print it. And we would edit it and update it and then and then publish it. I wish I could almost I wish I could almost show you one, but that wouldn't help our audience right now. But uh, <laughs> no, not at after all. I'll, I'll grab one and show you what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. What made you choose Annihilator? A quintessential Canadian band. Fair. You know, it could have been it could have been Anvil, could have been Razor, mm-hmm. could have been you know any one of those big classic bands. But I thought, yeah, and I, I like Annihilator, and they've got a good history and a lot of information flowing through them, people coming and going. So ah, Annihilator is good enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wonder what the size of those encyclopedias would be these days. It's incredible. Uh, one advantage of metal archives is they have some advanced search features and database functions that you can explore. So right now there's, um, according to them, there's about 8,000 metal albums coming out a year, full length studio albums. And this has been going on about 10 years now. So, yeah, can you imagine a, a book with 8,000 albums just for one year? I mean, it's it's beyond the point of even printing it. It's just a waste of paper at this time, just a doorstop. <laughs> it's almost incomprehensible, like 8,000 full-length albums a year. I mean, I put out on Metal Fridays, I put out the list of Metal Injections releases, which isn't too many. And then there's somebody on Twitter and... I haven't really chatted with him too much, but K-Man Riffs, he puts out basically uh, a picture, two pictures every week that have all the album covers on it and then a list next to it. Oh, yeah. And I, I make sure I listen to as many of those as possible, but I've found that now I'm just like, if I don't like the genre, generally I try and skip it, or at least I listen to a couple songs to see if it's still not my thing. But oh, that's even hard to keep track of. Well, if you let's let's do the math. If we're looking at eight thousand albums divided by three sixty five, we're looking at thirty full length new studio albums every single day of the year. Yeah, good luck. So, at forty five minutes an album, I mean, no one can listen to that much. No one can consume that much entertainment. You wake up at dawn and you listen to metal twenty four hours a day, and mm-hmm. then you get another stack of here's your thirty albums for today, and like, there's no sleep, right? You just oh, no one can absorb that much content. So. 
So you got it. You have to be selective. You have to say, well, I'm a black metal guy, so I'll listen to these ten black metal albums. I'm yeah. a power metal guy. Here's the three power metal albums of the day, or whatever. Right? Do you find with the amount of content that's out now that you kind of um, you like listen to a lot of new stuff and you just let it kind of lapse after a while? Oh yeah, certainly. In fact, it's funny you mentioned that today. I just um, I had a bit of that feeling today because I was preparing the next episode of my radio show. Uh, with new bands and i was looking at my itunes account and so far i've received 1066 new albums this year sent to me for review or airplay and at at some point you go i i can't no one can listen to that much you try and you don't want it to be a chore earlier saying Mm -hmm. this is supposed to be fun right so no one can listen to a thousand albums in a year and having something intelligent to say about each one so you pick your battles and go this this one looks cool this one has a great album cover i like this style the buzz on the street or I read a great review of that album and you, you just kind of synthesize it and pick your best ones and, and sub champion those as much as you can. It's crazy how that changes over time. Like I remember being quite a bit younger and you get like a few albums and you really get to intimately know them, but with totally. the amount of like, not only just music, but quality music that's coming out today, it's like really difficult to pick and choose one and then just stick with that for such a long time. Oh, I agree. I agree. And I think some people, and I, I don't include myself in this group, but some people have that that enthusiasm and excitement to be the first guy to hear the new thing, which is great. Um, but how long can you sustain that where you're not, you listen to it once and go, oh, I heard the new band X and it goes in the pile and you don't build a, a develop a relationship with that album or you mm-hmm. you miss a lot of the nuance or you've heard it once or twice and can you really say you are a, a true fan if you heard two songs of a record and then threw it in the pile or discarded it probably not yeah but uh, you're absolutely right that's very observant of you it's like how do you maintain that enthusiasm and how do you find those albums that uh, resonate with you later in life that like this is my top 10 of the year or whatever right and you still go back to them do they stand the test of time (laughs) you know i've uh this is the first year that i've actually kind of tracked my top 10s and i have like a canadian list i have an ep list and an album list and i found myself changing them out quite often because i'm like okay i really like this but is it something that i'm going back to consistently like maybe it's not as musically good but it makes me feel better or maybe it's not quite my genre but it's got that excitement or that um that intensity that really draws me in so it's like, oh, what are you so measuring true. it against? It doesn't, I don't even know anymore. That's, that's a great point. And that's one sort of minor criticism I have of a lot of the metal media these days is that they start putting out their top 10 lists in October. Mm-hmm. Like how you haven't even heard everything that's come out this year. How can you start saying this is the best album of the year when you haven't heard anything that came out in October, November, December? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, sometimes I'll wait a year or two before I formalize mm-hmm. my personal top 10 of the year like two years later am i still listening to that record and i'm like you i'll switch it out it's like i was so excited about this record but after five or ten listens i'm like i'm done with it mm-hmm. it's not going to be a favorite in two years from now you know what i mean yep well and then there are some that it just instantly grab you that you're like yeah this isn't changing yeah that's right this is quality material from day one that's so true or you find a slow burner people say Oh, you really should check this band out again. Um, this is a great example for me personally. A uh, ghost. You know, there's a lot of controversy about ghosts if they're metal or not metal and all this. But setting all that aside, I mean, I I got the first few ghost albums and I didn't pay much attention. But 
over time I'm listening to them more I'm, and I'm thinking, okay, I hear what people are saying. I understand. I, maybe I'm not fully feeling the magic that a lot of fans are, but now I'm getting ghost. It's like, okay, it was a slow burn. Go back, revisit those records five years later. Like, okay, now I, I get it. So they're slowly creeping up my list of bands that I appreciate a little more than, than other bands. Mm-hmm. Well, and appreciate can be different than like too. Um, there are some bands that I absolutely yeah. appreciate, but I don't prefer taste wise, and I don't really put on. Like Ghost totally. would be one of those bands. I think they're I think they're talented. They have a really good thing going for them, but it's just not my style. So I'll grab it gravitates towards something more akin to I don't know mental cruelty or something like that. Yeah, exactly. That's it. It's like okay, I I wrap my head around Ghost, but they're never going to be those those top favorites. But mm-hmm. I sort of just blew them off first and like, okay, now I've given them a chance. They're okay, but not elite. <laughs> yeah, might exactly. taste anyway. <laughs> so then what goes into an elite band for you? Oh, wow. It's got to be the complete package. I mean, songs, right? It's all about a song. If the song doesn't, isn't catchy or move you, then you can have all the extra, you can have great production and great intelligent lyrics. But if the song structure isn't there and the performance isn't there, then it doesn't do it for me. Mm. So, I mean, and I do like some technically, I listen to some prog metal, which is technically proficient and interesting and well-performed, but sometimes it's not always the songs aren't always there as well. That's a common common criticism, especially with um, guitar heroes as well, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes just like, yeah, you can play, but maybe the song isn't there. So it comes down to song-based stuff for the stuff that truly lasts the test of time for me. Yeah, that's understandable. And with a lot of like technical or or progressive instrumentals, like you you run the risk of just not being able to sit there and bang your head like to a, a consistent yeah. beat or or just like a song that you just you know you're excited for. Like you said, they could be playing very well and they can be proficient, but it might just miss that impact. Yeah, I don't think I've ever head banged to Dream Theater. Like, <laughs> I have a lot of the records and I like them, but they don't they don't like they don't get me rock it out, you know. <laughs> Definitely. James Labrie is an incredible uh, vocalist. He's His voice yeah. is insane. Yeah, but I'm not thrashing out, go driving down the highway to Dream Theater, you know? <laughs> like, that's something I, I put on with the, you know, the kid hanging around because she likes that stuff. So it's perfect. Yeah, when you're doing the dishes or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I definitely want to get her into metal, so I can't just like throw in like brutal technical death metal. I have to start start slow. Yeah, like, here's your revocation album for your birthday. That's not going to work, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. She likes, uh, so far, she likes Iron Maiden and Judas Priest, so I think I'm doing all right. Yeah, you're starting off with the basics. It's classic. That's good. You're on, you're well on your way. Parent She's of the got year. a long, long timeline, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so for a while now, you've been uh, on the advisory board for Noctis Valkyrie Metal Festival and a judge for the Juno Awards in 2011, and now current hair of uh, the Heavy Metal Committee for Karis. Um can you give me a little bit of an overview about those three? And then what, how do you, how do you become yeah. the current chair of the heavy metal committee? For a Certainly. Well, just a point of par- clarification. I'm actually the, uh, the past chair now this year. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, so it's a two year term. So I'm the past chair. So how that worked, let's talk about Keras. So that's mm-hmm. the Canadian Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. Mm-hmm. They're the main musical industry organizational body in Canada much like uh, every nation has their own governing body that looks at how the music industry is run, how it's um, how payment schemes are made, how um, radio and record labels interact and all this type of stuff. 
And so, and every country have their own music awards. So Karis is most famously known for the Juno Awards here in Canada, which for our international listeners, it would be like um, the Mercury Awards in England or the Grammys in America or, or things like this. So just to confirm before you continue, Karis puts on the Juno Awards. Correct. Oh, I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah. So Karis runs the Juno Awards. It's one of the many okay. things they do uh, along with music advocacy and industry uh, recognition and things like that. So the uh, Karis runs the Junos and the Junos are the annual national awards. Mm-hmm. And for many years, there was no heavy metal category. So a couple of friends of mine in Toronto kept saying, we need a metal category. There was one briefly that ran from about 87 to 93 and then was dropped for lack of interest. So 10 years ago this year, back in, I guess it would be uh, 2012, they said, we need a metal category. So they approached Karis and said, there's a lot of bands, there's a lot of industry people, there's a lot of recognition, we should have our own award. And they, they agreed, they said, yeah. So that was wonderful. So in the second year, I got involved as a judge. And then the third year, I was asked to sit on the committee and the committee essentially helps monitor the, the awards program and the system to make sure that there's a level playing field, that people understand the rules, mm-hmm. um, helping recommend judges for the nominations, helping get bands to submit, providing information to the industry, doing advocacy, media promotion, all that type of stuff. So I felt I could do more good on the committee than just a judge in quotes, right? Mm-hmm. So I've been doing that for almost, yeah, just about 10 years now, just trying to support the industry to show media organizations, the big media organizations that, yeah, metal exists and there's a lot of us out there and there's a lot of bands out there and we deserve respect and recognition for our art form. Well played. Yeah, it was great. What kind of rules do you have in place for a band to be considered or nominated? Uh, pretty straightforward. They have to have released a full-length studio album within the one-year time frame of the awards. Okay. And it's uh, there's some debate about you know metal genres because there's always like, is this a more of a punk band or a metal band, things like that. And that's what the committee will kind of decide, saying, well, let's recommend that this band goes into this category because it's not really a metal band. Mm-hmm. Or, or vice versa, we'll contact bands say, hey, you have a new record this year. We think you should submit uh, because we think you have a quality record and more people should hear it and recognize you. Obviously, someone, uh, a band like No More Moments wouldn't be considered in the metal uh, category of no. the punk side of things. Yeah, so they might get they might submit and we would recommend them to move to the alternative or rock category or something like that. Okay. And sometimes record labels or managers or artists might just throw their name in the hat uh, and then we'll say, well, no, we don't. That's not quite what we're looking for. This is the metal category. You should be competing in the rock category. Mm. I can't remember little inside story years ago. I, I don't remember. It was like maybe Tragically Hip or something applied for metal album of the year. Interesting. And we're like, no, no, you guys, you, you made a mistake. <laughs> like you're, you're in the rock category. Just like <laughs> this kind of thing. <laughs> I don't, don't quote me on that. I don't remember if it's exactly tragically hit, but it's one of those sort of mainstream rock band, Canadian rock bands. Like, no, you're in the wrong category. <laughs> when you are looking at different albums, um, 
to nominate a band like what are some of the things that you pick on or pick up on specifically is it is it the whole package does it include artwork the lyrics is it um solely musician uh, like musical proficiency well there's two layers involved <laughs> so we as a committee we can recommend bands and solicit bands but we don't screen bands it's not our role to judge art so if we get a brutal porno grind band that wants us a bit great go for it if we get an 80s style sleazy hair glam metal band who wants to submit great go for it we're not we're not the judges mm. we just make sure that they meet the criteria are you kind of rock or metal did your album come out in the right time frame are you canadian sometimes we've had american bands submit for the juno it's like you guys are in the wrong country. <laughs> what are you doing? Because you know? <laughs> their manager's like, oh, we thought we would try. It's like, no. <laughs> well, I mean, the worst they can say is no, right? Exactly, exactly. So they try and we say, no, sorry, this is kind of more for us Canucks up here. But uh, so we don't screen. However, the, the judges do. And it's an interesting because we don't pick judges because there would obviously be a conflict of interest, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I was on the committee and I could pick the judges, I'd just pick you and me and we'd pick our favorite bands and they'd win every year, right? Mm -hmm. So we recommend industry people to be judges. So we'll say, hey, my friend does a great magazine or my friend does a great website or there's this DJ in Montreal who really has a kick-ass metal show. They would be a good judge. So we take all those names and put them in a pool. Then an independent third party goes through and talks to those judges and they pick that pool of judges and nobody knows who they are because it has to be professional, discreet, uh, anonymous, all those things. Hmm. So I never know who the judges are until the night of the, of the announcements when they finally say, here are the judges. Wow. So it, it's gotta be that way. And it's a big accounting firm that manages it. So it's totally secret. That's a great way to have definite um, equality when it comes to like perceptions, um, like influences, stuff like that. Like you're far removed from that whole side of things. It has to be that way for neutrality, mm -hmm. lack of bias, professionalism. And I can, I can say without any hesitation, I think I, it's a joke on the committee that I'm about zero for eight picking who the winner is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like even zero for 10 for like, what band do I want to win? And they never win. Because the judges vote for someone else. I'm like, oh, good for you guys. Congratulations, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I just support and encourage bands. Hey, this could be your moment in the sun. Go for it. So and then when the judges are picked, they get a list of all the submissions uh, yes. for the album. And then they go through individually and choose their own favorites. There, or There's a digital system. And okay. they listen to every album. And then they yeah. rank them. And then the statistically analyze it and the top five become the official nominees. Mm. And then once you have your five nominees and they do it all again and rank them again. And the number one is the one that wins the award in the year. And it's, and some people have trouble with that understanding that the judges are not biased. You know, they say, Oh, those guys wouldn't know a good metal record. It's like, well, the people have spoken, you know, it's, uh, it's a dozen, metal fans voted for that record and there's some sore losers and there's some triumphant winners right <laughs> yeah definitely well and when you come down or when it comes down to it it's all subjective it's all biased you're 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 preferring certain things over others so that's not inherently bad it's just when you do it for malicious reasons 
That's right. And that's why we try to pick judges to enter into the pool who we think mm-hmm. are knowledgeable fans. Uh, you know, they try to be reasonably, reasonably intelligent, unbiased. Um, I've had judges who have said publicly, oh, I hate that band. I'll never vote for them. It's like, well, you're limiting your option to be a judge because you're stating your bias so strongly. You're not going to be neutral. You're not going to be fair. And they need to look at criteria like production, lyrics, songwriting, performances, all that stuff. It's not just that this is my favorite band. I get to vote for them. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't work like that. That wouldn't be fair. No, definitely not. Uh, you were also a factor grant judge, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So is that similar to, um, or does that have anything to do with Keras, or is that no? Like that's separate. So the Factor Grant program is a federally run program. So they take our tax dollars to support arts programs, and they have a pool of grant money, mm-hmm. and artists of any genre can apply and say, "Hey, I would like a ten thousand dollar grant because I want to record a new album, I want to go on a tour of Europe, or whatever the case may be," and they have to apply. And they submit an application package, which is quite detailed. And then there's a whole pool of judges. And we look at that package and say, have you got a good business plan? How are you going to spend this money? Uh, Is your music viable? Does it sort of meet the criteria for supporting Canadian content and those types of things? Um, Are you going to make wise use of this money? Are you just going to spend it on uh, beer and cigarettes? You know, that that kind of thing. (laughs) So then... Uh, all those judges, and I don't have no clue who the other judges are, they tabulate the results and say, yeah, this, this band has a viable chance of advancing their career and promoting Canadian talent and getting a record deal outside of Canada or whatever the objective might be. Mm-hmm. And then they, they, they get the money. They get ten grand or what, whatever it is. That's definitely a program that I can get uh, that I am behind. I think it's important that like our governments at all levels kind of support art and kind of the more the less rigid side of things, if that makes sense. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. It's like, you know, we recognize your talent and everyone. I think most people I've I've met very few people who just hate art and artists in general. So there's these grants can go out to, you know, poets and musicians and filmmakers and television artists and there's a whole range and i just happen to get on the radar and say hey you're a metal guy we have all these metal guys coming and asking for money through this grant program do you want to help us kind of weed through them and i'm like yeah i'd be honored to thank you and are you still involved with factor i am yeah awesome how long have you yeah. been doing that for uh three or four years now it's it's okay. an un, it's an unpaid position uh it's volunteer work but it's great because i get to see you know, the business plan of a band that'll say, hey, we're, we want to we want to tour Europe or we want to spend this money to hire this awesome producer in Europe or we want to uh, buy a tour van so we can tour all the way across the country. And everyone has great reasons how and why they need financial support mm-hmm. as young growing artists. So we say, yeah, give it. Tell us tell us what your plan is and we'll see try to spread the wealth a little bit as much as we can. <laughs> yeah. And how many metal bands like yearly would get this grant approximately? Um, there's probably one or two a year, I would say, because okay. there's a, a thousand genres out there. Right. Um, so I, you, you do it about four times a year mm. uh, on a volunteer basis. And I might have six bands that are applying in that cycle to get a grant. And so it might, it might even be up to four, three or four. I'm not sure the total big picture numbers. I should probably 
should probably ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> and the, you said the grant is $10,000, correct? There's varying grants. Some are sort of song development grants for new okay. artists. Some are grants for bands that already have a couple of records and maybe want to go to the next level, like hire a big name producer or go to Hollywood mm-hmm. uh, or Europe and tour. So there's different different levels um, of, of how they do that and what they want to use the money for, you know, music or career development. Like, so for example... Oh, sorry. Some of the music ones might be like, yeah, we, we need to buy new guitars and a new drum kit. Like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, sure. Great. Excellent use of your money. Uh, and some are be like, like I said, we, we need to buy a tour van. Or some might be, uh, again, tour support. We want it. We have this plan. We're going to print a thousand t-shirts and go on tour. Okay, great. So mm-hmm. everyone has their different goals of where they are in their career path. And we just try to support and help that as much as we can. Mm-hmm. So a band like Striker, for example, I had uh, Dan Cleary on the podcast a while back. Um, yeah, great guy. Yeah, he is an uh, incredible singer as well. So he, well, they won the Juno or a Juno Award, and then they were also a Factor recipient. Um, yep. Could they then receive a subsequent grant from Factor, or is that something that they're precluded from? You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I don't think, don't quote me, but I don't think you can receive multiple grants because then people might just go back to the well. You know, Stryker's well-established now. They tour Europe. They've won a Juno. Um, they have multiple albums. So they're probably past the point where they could get those grants. But again, don't quote me on that. Uh, it would be more when they were starting out, they said, we have this great plan. And everyone looked at it and said, yeah, Stryker has potential to represent Canadian metal on the international stage as one of our elite bands. And they did it. They put in the hard work. And so that's why they were voted for, you know, at the factor level and at the Juno level. Just a class act all the way. Yeah, 100%. And those guys would be, and like you said, they probably wouldn't receive another grant and they're past that level. But when they're reaching that level, that's when they would ask for things like, hey, I'm going to go to Europe or I'm going to hire this producer. Whereas if they're just starting out, it's more or less equipment and stuff like that. That's right. That's right. Okay. Is judging grants similar judging for those grants similar to the YYC Music Awards? Judging grants, there tends to be a lot more reading because they'll send you a press kit and a press release. And then what we do is we provide feedback as judges, as industry experts, and I use that term very loosely applied to Mm -hmm. myself. (laughs) But they might send us a press kit and I'll say, this is really good, but it's got lots of spelling mistakes. Mm -hmm. Uh, You forgot to include your email address. Um, you know, uh, you say you're going to spend all this $10,000 on t-shirts, but without any sort of plan. So quite often we will provide constructive criticism to say you're on the right path, Mm. but your business plan, you need a manager, you need a lawyer, um, you need a tour manager. You can't just ask for money and not have a good plan. And that's, Unfortunately, it's a bit of the industry side of it. Uh, when you're going to use taxpayers' money and federal grant money, it has to be justified, it has to be viable, it has to be intelligently spent, mm-hmm. which sounds horrible, very bureaucratic. But um, we can't just give – everyone wants everything, right? So you can't just give out money to every band that wants money. So you have to say, look, show me show me your intelligence. Show me you have a wicked plan. Show me you got a kick-ass record. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had that constructive criticism. And I've seen everything from multimedia presentations for their 
for their factor grant application to a guy who just scribbles on a napkin that says, I need, I need money to buy guitar strings. It's like, well, <laughs> maybe you need to work on your presentation a little bit. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that might be doable, but at least present it professionally. Like you said, it's, it's on the taxpayer's dime. So you need to be accountable for that. And you need to answer to any questions that might come up. At least if you have That's something right. tangible saying, this is the business plan, this is where they want to go. We helped them get there and they achieved it. That's right. Yeah. And show me a press kit. If you're going to talk to me, sell me. Tell me you're the best band in the world and why. Show me a, a, a really good photo of your band. Show me your nice press kit. Show me, uh, play me a song that blows my socks off. You know, those types of things. And that mm -hmm. we encourage the bands to improve their level of professionalism uh, beyond garage band status into recording artists, performing, touring, signed to a record label. How do you stay objective when you're dealing with a band that you don't like personally? Or they don't like their music, rather. Uh, that's a tough one. You know, I'm extremely open-minded with the amount of metal that I like. Um, there's very few bands that I just absolutely do not like. And if I do occasionally come across one, I just have to step back and say, okay, I'm not really into the, you know, like a rap metal band. But I say, I have to objectively look at it, not subjectively say, they have a great business plan. Mm -hmm. uh, they look good. They sound good. They have their financial spreadsheet is excellent and they have a big fan base and they have a record and it might not be to my taste, but man, these guys with their audience, they're going somewhere. Thumbs up. Right. Okay. You just have to be honest and objective and fair and support all, all the bands in the genre. Mm -hmm. You've touched on a few things like the business plan, uh, presentation, like pictures, uh, proper spelling and grammar. What are some other things that bands can do to be more competitive when being looked at some at for a factor grant? That's a good question. You know, there's a lot of bands out there, as we were saying earlier, 8,000 mm -hmm. albums come out a year. How is your band going to stand out? Mm -hmm. If you haven't got the individual talent on your musical instruments, if you haven't got songs that resonate with people, uh, those are critical starting points. However, you could be the best band in the world and play in your garage. And if no one hears you and no one knows about you, you're not going to go very far, mm -hmm. right? Like every band that starts on day one in the garage is Metallica. Every band, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what takes you to the next level? It's like, well, we've got whatever the genre might be. We've got cool stage names. We dress mm -hmm. a little differently. We have an awesome band name. We hired this publicist. We have a manager who's professional, we have a lawyer and we can talk intelligently to record industry people to say, we're going to go somewhere. We're going to have a hell of a lot of fun doing it, but we're not just some dumb kids banging away in the garage. You know, we want to be artists. We want this to be a career. We want to have fun, but we also, there's nothing wrong with making some money along the way too, right? Selling some records, exposing their art to the world. So they've got a take themselves at least a little bit seriously in order to be considered. They can't just go in with the party mentality saying, yeah, like you said, we're not going to spend, or we're just going to spend this on beer and cigarettes. Very much so. And I, I admire bands as well that say, we don't want to participate. Mm -hmm. I find, especially for the Juno awards, because they are perceived to be quite corporate, mm -hmm. which is not unfair, but I'll approach a, a local black metal band and they say, no man, awards, awards suck. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and that is, that's, that's so cool right I, can, I wish i could remember was it enslaved 
or Dimu early in their career got nominated for like the Swedish Grammy and they're like, no, take us off the ballot. We don't want anything to do with you guys. <laughs> I'm like, good for you. Cause that's, you know, blackmail is the antithesis of this whole corporate award thing. Mm-hmm. So it's like, we don't want to participate in your game. We just want to do our thing. It's like, Hey, good. Excellent. More power to you. Mm-hmm. So I'll have bands say, yeah, I'm not applying for factor grant or we don't want to be in the Junos. It's kind of lame. We're more underground. It's like, great. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I fully get that. And you, you, I'm still going to listen to your record. It's still going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to change my mind about you for sure. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, numbers can be manipulated, obviously. And we're both very much aware of like the, I guess, darker side of social media. So do you guys pay any attention to like uh, social media followers or like monthly listeners on Spotify? I don't. Um, however, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that that is the way that young bands communicate to their market now. Mm-hmm. So we will get factor grants that say we have 10,000 streams or a thousand uh, listens on Spotify or a million, or we had a million hits of our YouTube video and you can't help but be impressed say yeah that's good you're getting your market out there you're using social media as a valuable marketing tool mm-hmm. rather than printing flyers and putting them on a telephone pole like the old days right you're smart enough to know your algorithms like some of these young bands i talk to have their patreon campaigns kickstarter campaigns incentive campaigns and they know their numbers like yeah dude yesterday six thousand people listened to my song it's like that's incredible minute knowledge that you can mm-hmm. exploit for lack of a better term. It's a negative term, but you could exploit that and say, look, Mr. Record Company guy, 20,000 people listen to my song. We've got some potential here. And he'll go, wow, 20,000 people. That sounds amazing. Or 20 million, whatever the big numbers yeah. might have to be these days. <laughs> exactly. Well, and then you look at like the way that you can boost those posts. Like you can, you can always pay for followers or you can pay for um, like Facebook ads or, or distributing yes. your, your works elsewhere into more places but is that is that considered cheating in a way or is that something that you guys take into consideration with like organic exposure i don't know enough personally about how social media works to make that distinction i mean i still struggle with facebook what's the difference between a like a hit engagements uh organic i mean it's how many people read it or did it just flash on their screen? Did they actually read it? Mm. So those statistics and numbers can be manipulated. But if a smart band says, well, I'm going to pay for a lot of Facebook ads and generate this hype, then they're doing what it takes to try to create that enthusiasm and that hype about their band. Mm. I'll give you a comparable example from the old days. I was reading a book about kiss in the seventies and they are masters of self uh, promotion and manipulation of media as well, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Gene Simmons, we all know he's kind of a bit of a blowhard and he always sells his band. But what they would do is they would strike a backroom deal with publishers of magazines, like a popular rock magazine in the 70s, like Cream or Circus or something. Mm-hmm. And they say, we're going to, the Kiss organization is going to buy $10,000 worth of ads in your magazine in exchange for 5,000 copies of your magazine. So KISS, the organization, would get these 5,000 copies and they'd hire people to fill out the band of the year is KISS and their little clip-out contest where they'd have, hey, name your favorite band of the year. So 
the secretaries of the KISS office would fill out these coupons and mail 5,000 back of them to the magazine. And the next month, the magazine is like, KISS was voted most popular band of the month. And then we do it again, right? So organic, not at all. Yeah. Manipulating the fans, yeah. And then all those people, wow, KISS is a really great band. They go buy the KISS record and everyone makes money and everyone's happy. Is it sincere? No. Is it fair? No. <laughs> Does know? it work? Yeah. <laughs> Does it work? Yeah. <laughs> Same with if you're a rich guy and you can buy a billion hits on followers on Facebook. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, that's true, I guess. It seems it's crazy. a little, little dirty pool to me, but I, again, I don't know enough about it to really judge. When people mm-hmm. are struggling to stand apart from the packs of so go for it, right? Yeah. Well, it's the same shit, just an evolution of it, basically. Absolutely. Absolutely. For bands looking to get involved more in like grant programs or things like the YYC Medal Awards or Vakan Open Battle, uh, where would you suggest they start? Well, it's all online, obviously. Um, submissions, for example, Juno Awards, uh, junoawards.ca. Mm. Very simple. In fact, submissions open next week. So if you're a metal band in Canada and are thinking about applying, please do. It's all on the website. There's a small fee. I think there's an early bird fee as well. You fill out the form online, you submit your album digitally, mm-hmm. and uh, then it goes to the committee to say, yep, here's the new Striker album. Great. We all know they're metal. Welcome. Join the contest. Welcome aboard. Okay. So that's for Junos. Uh, same with Factor Grants. You can go to the various federal government websites. Uh, you know, use your favorite search engine to look up Canadian music grant programs, bursaries, th- those types of uh, keywords in your searches. And then that'll lead you to um, to those programs that are run through Department of Heritage, I believe, is one of the main main ones that helps distribute uh, these these funds. Okay. And uh, M- Calgary Music Awards, same thing, YYCMA. Uh, anyone can submit, anyone can apply, and it's very simple. Uh, there's usually a small processing fee of, you know, 50 bucks or something just to show that you're serious or interested and then uh, to help support the system that mm-hmm. runs it. Okay. And Vakan Open Battle, is that something that... Um, I don't really know anything about it, to be honest. I know that um, winners of that battle can be invited to Vakan Open Air, but I don't really know the process it- well, that's a very interesting process. Uh, it started back in around 2010. Okay. So Vakken, the actual festival grounds, would have local bands doing a little battle of the bands. And it started to grow, so they started to have regional and then international battle of the bands. Okay. So the Vakken organization provides the judging criteria. And they started to get sponsors. So now there are international battles, and the winner of each national battle goes to play in a tent at Vakken over the course of the weekend and there are judges there and then they vote who's the winner and the winner usually gets like all new gear recording contract um and they get to play that gets play on the big stage or something like this so Mm -hmm. there's you know some fairly high stakes a lot of bands have had their careers launched through uh through Vakken metal battle when you get to that elite level where now you're playing in front of 30,000 people Mm -hmm. or 40,000 or whatever the number is so it all That's starts really with cool. little local battles of the band. And how many countries are those um, battle of the bands in? Dozens and dozens and dozens. Okay. Yeah. In fact, there's so many now that they uh, rotate countries. Oh shit. Because, yeah, because you could, you know, if you had a hundred 
bands, international winners, how do you listen to that many bands over a course of three days and mm. pick the winner? So I'm not sure the exact number, but they seem to limit it to maybe like 40 or something. Okay. I'm just picking that number out of the air. But uh, I know that Canada has actually been excluded the last few years hmm. because Canadian bands won three, two of the last three years in a row or something. So they said, okay, let's give Canada a rest. <laughs> and uh, But I think 2023... We're eligible again to be a Vakan medal battle contender. So it's almost like the World Cup in soccer. You've got to qualify to yeah. get to the, the final round, right? But if you're too good, fuck off for a little a couple of years. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So right. there's been I'm a lot of we're doing bands. it better, I guess. Yeah. There's a list somewhere online of all the winners, and some of them are big name bands we'd all recognize that got their start as like I'm a little bar band. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then off off to the races they go and they've got an international recording contract with nuclear blast or century media or whoever mm-hmm. the sponsor is that year it's fun i've done judging it's, it's great to see local bands just hammering it out going for the ring mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the brass ring <laughs> it's interesting to see sometimes how metal labels are or not how they do this but how they who they choose to put on the label like there are some that i would never expect and then others that i thought would be on a label for sure they don't either don't want anything to do with them or there's no partnership oh certainly and there's a lot uh the old-fashioned idea of record labels is really has evolved away from the original model right i mean when the recording industry started no one could no one knew how or didn't have the technology to record music Mm -hmm. record companies owned recording studios and they would hire a producer and an engineer, and then a band would create a demo, a demonstration, mm-hmm. and then they would go into the studio and record the record. These days, a guy can make his whole album and make it sound brilliant on his laptop while he's sitting at Starbucks, right? You don't need recording studios anymore. Anyone with Cubase or Pro Tools can make their own records. Mm-hmm. So the old-fashioned model of the recording industry is really evolving away from paying a producer and paying to go into a physical environment where they set up drums and put different microphones on them and have a big room for good drum sound that's sort of drifting away because all of those sounds are instantly pre-programmed into the computer and if you want to sound like tommy lee's drums in 1984 or you want to sound like the drums off the last cannibal corpse album you push the button and you instantly got that sound right Hmm. so the need uh, to pay to do that is going away because bands are smarter now. They're doing it themselves. They're doing it faster and cheaper. Mm-hmm. Where record companies now, they provide tour support. They provide expertise, merchandising, marketing, connections to contacts, uh, agents who will book you on a tour, things like this. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely an evolutionary type type of model. But back to your original point, and I'm babbling a lot. You're absolutely right. It's there's doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. There could be a kick-ass band who keeps getting passed over for record labels, or some bands that just seem like how who gave them money to make a record? Like mm-hmm. you know, like who who made that decision to put these guys on this tour? They suck. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> After you ended up just telling me that none of your favorites ever won. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Mine would be the same. Don't worry. <laughs> So who, who are these people who make these decisions? And it is still people with money. You know, a lot of these big record companies, if you get signed to a nuclear blaster century media, mm-hmm. they're going to give you 10 grand to get going. 
and a lot of bands would not sneeze at that. Mm-hmm. I've noticed a lot of bands are starting their own labels or kind of sticking with smaller ones because they get that intimacy, that attention that they deserve rather than say something like Napalm or, or Century Nuclear Blast. Like there's so many artists under those umbrellas that it's really hard for each to get the proper attention and the proper care that they need to be successful. That's a very good point that you made. Yes. Uh, some bands say, I'd rather be the big fish in a little pond. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather be the star on a small label or, and some bands say, you know what, I'm going to, sw- I'm in the, the big swim with the big sharks. I'm going to go on the biggest label mm-hmm. and try to make the biggest splash. So a lot of it's up to individual personalities of the band. Do they want complete creative control? Are members willing to relinquish some creative control to the record label who says, I think this is going would benefit you. Mm-hmm. We've heard lots of heard lots of stories where a band will put out a record and they don't even know what the album cover is going to be because the record label chose it for them and did all the marketing ahead of time, which seems so odd to me. Yeah. But then at the same time, if the record comes saying, I'm going to pay this photographer and do this photo shoot and put this package together and pay for all of it then the artist relinquished some of the, some of those rights to say, wow, you did an amazing job. Maybe I wouldn't have picked that as my album cover, but it looks really cool. And then now there's 10,000 copies sitting in the store right now, which they wouldn't have been able to do on their own. I feel like there should be a healthy collaboration between the two. Like if you're on a label, yeah, they can have some creative direction, but when it comes down to it, it's still your art and still something that's reflective of you. So to give that power to somebody else wholly, um, if I was in that position, it, it just wouldn't be for me. I agree. Some bands um, are very focused on music. I've talked to a lot of musicians, and they don't care about the lyrics. Uh, they don't care about, you know, what's on the album cover. They they are really focused on their music. And someone else in the band might be the manager. Someone else might be the artistic guy. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an old-fashioned example. I was talking to my wife today about the band Rush. Mm-hmm. Right. The drummer wrote all the words. He doesn't even sing. So it's like the the other two guys, they don't care about the lyrics. They're like, yeah, "Ah, just write some words and I'll sing them. (laughs) If I was a vocalist, I would only sing my words. I don't want someone else telling me what to sing. But they're for them. It's like, ah, that's okay. I'm too busy learning how to play the bass and the synthesizer. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Like for me, that'd be perfect because I have no creative fortitude whatsoever. Like I, I (laughs) I try to come out with a song and it's like, yeah nobody would want to listen to that let alone read it so we'll just yeah <laughs> same with <laughs> instruments that's why i don't do music but yeah let someone else uh, someone else handle that so bands sometimes and that's sometimes a hire a manager say we don't want to deal with those record company jerks that's yeah. your job we're paying you to help make sure our album cover looks good and they don't screw up the the production or distribution of our record you know mm-hmm. so you hire professionals who can help engage in your career and and grow with you and kind of on the opposite side of things, not the corporate side, obviously, and not the business side of things, you were a guest lecturer at Mount Royal University. What courses did you lecture in? It was just sort of a, I've done it for University of um, Calgary and University of uh, Alberta as well. Just guest mm-hmm. speakers on a class, you know, okay. talking about metal or whatever the case may be. And just colleagues who are professors say, hey, I'm doing a class on uh, one was sort of a comparative Talk about comparative literature, and so we just would take, we're talking about rock operas specifically and how they uh, tell a story and, you know, metaphors and development of story through art and things like this, you know, sort of introductory art classes or 
stuff like that. So yeah, it was fun. It's not a regular thing. It's not a paying gig. Just be honored to be asked to come and babble about metal for an hour to some some bored university kids. <laughs> and that they're willing to listen a lot of the time too. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes they get engaged, ask questions. Uh, and we try to give examples that might be useful for their own lives or their career, the art that they're developing, saying mm-hmm. this is this is how these how these things work or could work in the past. And here's some experiences we've had and how artists create, you know, bigger picture stuff rather than just writing a song. Mm -hmm. Speaking of experiences and kind of being shaped over time, uh, over the past like 40 years in your experience, what are some of the trends that you've seen in the metal world? And um, I guess maybe a better question is like, what are some things that musicians are doing better now than they used to? And some things that you would wished have would have remained the same or similar? Mm, That's a very good question. I think the talent has increased exponentially with the number of bands. I mean, I see some kids on YouTube or 13 who are ripping off solos that are incredible because they practice hard, really hard. And there's a lot of very talented, technically proficient young musicians out there who can emulate growing up playing guitar hero. Their fingers are fast, right? Mm -hmm. And they're doing stuff that usually bats would have to excuse me bang out with a guitar and a practice amp in a garage and the kids are doing it faster and better better technical tools um, all these things so the talent's broadly getting better another big trend of course more bands just the evolution of the evolution of the genres i mean when i started it was kind of metal and then it was like oh here comes thrash metal here comes mm-hmm. death metal here comes black metal here comes grindcore and now we ha- we all know there's like you know 30 little subgenres and sub subgenres and people have great times debating those over beers at the pub or online so it's definitely an evolution in how we define music and these genres now and the things that have to be in that genre to be considered a black metal band or mm. a death metal band whereas before those lines used to be blurred quite a bit i feel like now too they've they've blurred the lines but they've also made so many subgenres, so there's not actually like the lines are not no longer blurred if that makes sense yes. like it's kind of like they 100%. they try to separate themselves into their own little category because nothing like that currently exists like i don't know jazz infused power metal or something i have no idea but oh you're so right i mean a great example is metallica's first demo they called themselves power metal hmm. before they were known as a thrash band because the term thrash didn't really exist yet they said mm-hmm. we're a power metal band well Metallica power metal is very different than what Sonata Arctica might be calling power Mm -hmm. metal these days, right? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And same with um, Venom used to be called black metal. Well, they're they're nothing like Mayhem, you know, or Burzum or any of those guys. Like totally, like two completely different things. So the terminology has evolved, the genres evolved, the heaviness and speed and intensity have evolved, um, which which is really cool. Because now there's something for everyone. Some people say I like it faster. Some people like it more technical. Some people say I like the operatic female vocals, whatever. Anything you can find, there's a thousand bands that can fit your style now with the click of a button. And something that's so enjoyable about that is like you might not necessarily like the style of metal, but you, you can appreciate what they're bringing to the table. Oh, very and much And it's something so. fresh too. Like it's if you're not always listening to your specific genre, it kind of opens your mind and then brings you 
at least what I would assume on the musician side of things, it brings you more inspiration and a little bit more exposure to what you could be doing with your instruments instead of what you are doing. Oh, I agree. I agree. The more diversity, the bigger the talent pool, you look around and see what your neighbor's doing and draw inspiration and influences from that. Mm-hmm. If you're in your, what's that term? Echo chamber, right? If you're on your own little echo chamber, then you're probably just going to be doing the same thing, but that's okay. Cause some bands are like, I'm a thrash band. I'm old school thrash. And I, I want to sound like Megadeth and 86 and that's all I'm going to do. Like, great. Awesome. Go for it. You know, they're not going to then- dabble in other influences. Yeah, and nothing wrong with that as long as they keep getting better for themselves. Like, say Cannibal Corpse, they haven't really changed too much over the years. Of course, they've gone through their evolution, but their their main lane has remained the same. Totally. And they've just gotten really, really good at what they're doing. And I admire bands like that that say, no, we, we're good at what we do. We like what we do, and we don't want to change. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I like that, too, because, you know, when I go to McDonald's, I want a McDonald's hamburger. I don't want spaghetti, mm-hmm. you know? So when I listen to Cannibal Corpse, I don't want to hear rap. I don't want to hear female vocals. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to hear some song about some guy chopping some guy in the head with a knife, right? <laughs> exactly. No doubt. <laughs> like, don't don't add all this keyboards and stuff into Cannibal Corpse. It's not going to yeah. work. <laughs> no. There are some things that just should not mix. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> One of those things is me with a guitar. Oh, I don't even know what a chord is, so you're already ahead of me. <laughs> Based on your knowledge and your experience, can you make any predictions on where the metal world will choose to go? A couple, one negative and one positive. Uh, We'll start with a negative first. I think that the industry is at saturation point, as we Mm. talked earlier. You know, again, 8,000 bands, new albums a year. Mm -hmm. It's unsustainable. There's only so much money to go around. There's only so many fans. Uh, there's only so many agents and tours. Uh, there's only so many nights a week that you can put on a concert. Mm-hmm. So it's it's going to reach a tipping point. And I think we're going to see a drop in productivity. And I know that sounds like such a technical business type term, but I think we're going to see bands dropping off the radar. Kids who tried to make it and didn't. Uh, a lot of veteran bands are getting old. Like some of my old favorites, these guys are 60, 70 years old now. They're going to be swept away. And a lot of these new young bands that are really struggling to make it are not going to make it. So we're going to see a decrease. However, that might mean on the positive side, more quality, right? Mm -hmm. The cream will rise to the top. So instead of getting a thousand bands, maybe we're going to have 200 really kick-ass bands that can make a career, that can tour the world, that can sell a lot of records uh, online if that's the main goal of of making money, right? Mm -hmm. And exposing their art. Do you notice that a lot of bands are reaching like high levels of popularity, but not necessarily, I guess not necessarily benefiting like the way they used to, like you have Metallica and they are obviously, I would, I would just say the most famous metal band in the world at this point. Oh, hundred um, percent easily. I guess, I guess my question is more or less along the lines of like, they're very, I don't know. I'm just trying to think this through. So there are some incredible bands. Um, one of which I'm trying to use here is in Fury. I think they're incredible. They're very technical. They have the charisma on stage, great shows. They have a level of popularity, but I don't think that they're going to reach the same levels as somewhere like Metallica. And I think that's partly because, um, like you said, a saturation, but I think those are one, they are one of the bands that can rise to the top if, if that tipping point ends up happening. 
Definitely. And I think that the industry model has evolved where we used to measure success by sales, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's not always the best measure. I mean, that's an, a very important one. Mm -hmm. But now people aren't buying physical media. So when Metallica Black Album came out and they sold 10 million copies, mm -hmm. that's a lot of money into their pocket. So they can do all those things that they, they want to do now, right? Today's bands will never sell that many physical copies. Mm -hmm. uh, the royalty rate for streaming through Spotify and Apple Music are a fraction of a penny. So you have to sell millions and millions and millions of streams for people who are even paying for that anymore when they could just download it for free mm -hmm. to generate that revenue. So having said that, we're not going to see stadium level bands anymore where they, the charts are becoming a little more relevant again in terms of measuring popularity. Hmm. Uh, again, I've used a lot of old school examples just because of my age, but uh, the new Ozzy record came out mm -hmm. and he had his first number one album in America this year. Or this <laughs> just week. this year. That's really yeah. interesting. So here's a guy and it sold like 50,000 copies. Like that's nothing, right? And that's, but that's the most records anyone bought this week was the Ozzy album in America. 50,000 people bought a record. And when back in the 80s, he'd sell millions and he'd be like number 38 on the charts because all the, all the other pop bands were just totally blowing them out of the water in terms of people going and putting their money down to buy a record. So the whole industry has really evolved. So back to your original point, yeah, there's those bands that are undervalued in the market, like a stock, you know, they're like, this band kicks ass, they've got talent, they're touring, personality, they're good on the charts, but... Are, are they getting 10,000 people into your local hockey arena and it's not happening? And that mm -hmm. kind of makes me sad in a way. Oh, totally. And the thing is, bands now, they have to do more than just play the music and tour. Like they're on social media, they interact with the fans. I feel a lot more than they used to, uh, partly because that's more of their thing. And um, a few bands, like their members, whether they're streaming or whether they use TikTok as something else, they, they have to do something in addition to touring and making music. Oh, absolutely. They need new revenue streams. A lot of bands, I find a positive development in the industry is they the merchandising is just getting better and better and better. Mm -hmm. In the old days, I mean, it might have been your big bands, your Kiss and stuff and Metallica. They might have a few trinkets. They sold shirts and records. That's it. Now yep. bands have everything, barbecue sauce, liquor, you know, whatever they can put their name on it, lighters, and you go to some local shows and they say, check out our hot sauce, check out our, yeah. <laughs> you know, our whole line of merchandise. And that generates revenue. Um, I'm going to jump aside here for a second. Mm -hmm. uh, earlier you mentioned the Noctis conference. Mm -hmm. So I was a part of that and we have industry music conference. And one of the concepts that was brought forward, that concept is that a band can have, a thousand fans. So the idea is instead of having a million fans, mm -hmm. if you have 1000 fans who are willing to spend $100 a year on your band, you can sustain your band. So oh, if you think wow. about that, 1000 times 100 is how much? 100,000, right? Is yep. that right? Is that my math? 1000. Yep. $100,000. So mm -hmm. if you can generate $100,000 in revenue one fan spending a hundred bucks is not that much. One mm -hmm. concert ticket, one t-shirt, buying your album and maybe a bit of merch or a mm -hmm. donation through your Patreon. You get that hundred bucks from that one guy. You can have that thousand fans and sustain you hundred thousand dollars divided by four guys in your band. 
Mm-hmm. Everyone can make a little bit of a living and keep it going. Mm-hmm. So it's like focus your fan base to it's a laser precision. Give them what they want. Give them incentives. Give them uh, extra goodies, free downloads, cool special limited edition merch, rather than just we're going to spend that $10,000 on a magazine ad and hope people go buy our record. Well, and you touched on, not just touched on, but you kind of explained the whole merch game nowadays. That in itself is wonderful advertising because you have somebody that goes to your show, they pick up the shirt, another metalhead looks at it, you're like, oh, that's a fucking sweet shirt. So you go over and you're like, oh, I don't know this band. Then you start listening to it, then you're like, oh shit, I'm going to go buy their stuff. And then I find, I don't know about you, but I find that I'll buy multiple shirts from the same band because I, whether I see them multiple times or I just really like their designs, it's like, this is kind of my wardrobe now. Yep. Oh, for sure. And we're seeing more and more innovative merchandise ideas like board games, like comics, like books. Why not? You own your art, you own your intellectual property, right now. Mm-hmm. Why not write your autobiography or make a board game or a video game mm-hmm. uh, or have a digital only album of cool bonus tracks like uh, yeah. Ravenous here in town, yep. right? They Actually, I was just going to bring them up with their face masks. <laughs> Man, they're so cool, those guys. They have so many awesome ideas and they can make a living doing that. And they're yep. not... They don't have a huge record contract and they're not selling hundreds of thousands of records, but they are a solid band. They're smart. Those guys. Again, it comes back to that charisma and energy too, while you're performing and, and Rav is the one who was, I was thinking of when it came to Twitch. Um, he's on that streaming constantly, always engaging his fans. I'm like, this is crazy. Like your level of engagement, your passion, and also like just that, that relationship that you're building with your fan base has got to mean so much for the band. It's hard work. Mm-hmm. Rav works his ass off. Totally. I mean, uh, some of those rock stars in the old days, they used to just kind of do an interview and then get in their limo and go somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. It's like Rav just runs circles around those guys in terms of intensity, intensity and energy and engaging with the fans. And the mm-hmm. fans like, Rav's cool. I want to I want to see what crazy shit he's going to sing on, on Twitch yeah. today, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he's cool in real life, too. Like, I met him a few times uh, different shows and he's always friendly very humble and always willing to hang out all that stuff and i think that's a great model ravenous great local band calgary if you're international listeners as well check them out there's a band that's doing everything right and not focusing on a traditional model of looking for a record deal and hoping someone gives them a hundred thousand dollars to go on tour because that those days are over mm-hmm Apart from metal, do you find yourself listening to other genres of music? And if so, uh, what are you normally drawn to? No. No? Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, um, I'm, a, I'm a metal guy. You know, uh, We'll have on the radio around the house with the kids, pop and rock. And I grew up listening to country and classical and opera and a little bit of everything. But uh, yeah, hard rock and metal is pretty much exclusively what I've listened to about for 30, 40 years now. So <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty narrow-minded. <laughs> <laughs> narrow-minded but metal's the biggest genre ever that's right that's right i mean with eight thousand albums a year if i can't find something to listen to then i'm not looking hard enough <laughs> i have a hard time considering that other genres of music have the same um level of sub-genres like i can't imagine rap having like 15 different genres or same with country it's just no do they? i'm the same it's like when i think about country music there's like country and western yeah <laughs> you know, yeah pretty like, much <laughs> do, the, do the country guys get together online and debates like no you're like this sub sub genre of country this you're like old school east coast country <laughs> something. it's like no 
I guess some people would say the same thing about metal, but you talk to a metalhead, they're like, no, man, that's they're not even close. But some of my friends are like, that's screaming music. It's like, some of it, yeah. But <laughs> then you dive down that rabbit hole. I know. it's That's the classic. All metal's all just screaming. It's like, well, if you only listen at a superficial level, yeah. And same mm-hmm. with us. If I only listen to country or hip-hop at a superficial level, I, I can't tell you the difference between EDM, dubstep, rap, hip-hop, trance, all those little subgenres. But to those diehard fans, they mean something and they're knowledge and passionate about it. So I'm like, yeah, great. Enjoy it. Talk about it. Support it. Do your thing. And my last question for you tonight is, can you name some of your favorite bands? Oh, this isn't the last one. I I lied. That's, uh, you know, it's like asking which was the favorite hamburger I ever ate. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm an old school guy. So there's those nostalgic favorites that did the test of time. I really like Wasp. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, that whole shock rock, one of the first bands just to do that insane stage show, controversial lyrics, all that stuff. Uh, in terms of guitarists, Ingve Malmsteen, I really like just that fast, fluid, showing off type stuff he does all the time. Uh, for my real rivet head metal, I like Manowar, mm-hmm. just that old school. And then throughout any genre, and there's going to be those 10 or 20 elite bands that I've followed through their whole career, you know, through through death metal, through thrash metal, through black metal, through folk metal, you know, ask me tomorrow and you'll get a whole different uh, whole different brand of favorite bands. I, I yeah. follow so many bands and it becomes expensive. <laughs> <laughs> it's all worth it though in the end. Yeah, I mean, and there's so many good new young bands. I think some metal fans do get stuck in the past. And I have mm-hmm. friends like this. They only listen to their own favorites. They only listen to Iron Maiden. They only listen to Judas Priest when they grew up with them. And they'll buy the new record, but I'm like, hey, here's two or three bands that sound just like Judas Priest. Like, no, I'm not interested. Yeah. I'm like, well, why not? Those bands are just as kick ass. Mm -hmm. They're young. Give them a chance. But some people only want their nostalgia. And like some people were saying earlier, only look out the new stuff. So I try to find that balance. Like, here's a great new band, but I still like my old favorite bands. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the same could be said about Greta Van Fleet. They were put under the uh, chopping block because they sounded like Led Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's a newer Absolutely. iteration. You should be proud. You should be happy that this guy can sing like that. They were fun. I saw them in concert. And I thought, I got to check these guys out. They're great. Yeah. And, I should ask oh, you, what are some of your favorites you're listening to these days? Oh, okay. So Put you on the spot. Yeah, so I go through phases. Um, sometimes yeah. like, I'll hit uh, an old school death metal phase and I won't listen to anything but that style of music. Um, yeah. I'd have to say, so one of my, f- I'd say my third or fourth show after COVID kind of killed everything here was tech track five and i saw archspire inferi and volvodinia and entheos and the first three really hit me hard i was just like these guys are insane and again it came back to that charisma it was um the atmosphere of the night everything just worked well it was a spontaneous night um I ended up going for dim sum after and cruising around downtown for a couple hours so it was it was an amalgamation of everything but just having I would have to say even Entheos in there definitely surprised me because I wasn't really familiar with their music, whereas the other three Mm -hmm. bands I had listened to before. And those three bands still are on my regular rotation, but I've loved everything. uh, Like recently, like I said, Mental Cruelty, um, Lorna Shore has been one of my favorites, Breathing Process. I've moved really heavy into that deathcore side of things. Like Archaic Epidemic, um, Shadow of Intent. I cannot stop listening to their latest record. It's, yeah, it just blows me away. And I think like, 
what else is really cool with that is that I'll put on a song from one of those grind or deathcore bands and my wife is like, I like this. And I'm just really confused because she doesn't like a lot of the heavier music that I put on. So I'm like, oh. I don't, I don't understand what, what's going on inside your head, but I'm appreciating <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of appreciating, I mean, Art Spire, they won the Juno, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, oh, man. And they can guys trash it out as a, yeah, I saw them as a bar band when they were young and the, like instantly recognized, man, these guys are going somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to be right once in a while. It's not just like I got really drunk and liked their gig, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like these guys have talent and they do and they and they they're at that next level now. So it's fantastic. And the thing is that whole night, every single one of those performers just had the best time. And you could yeah. you could see in their faces, you could see it in their body language, and you're just like, these guys want to be here. And so that's kind of what drew me in, and that's why I keep going back to them. Um, but if we're talking about like older stuff, I can't stop listening to Dio, even like in Rainbow. Uh, oh yeah, you know Dio oh, yeah. era Sabbath and stuff like that. Like it's just constantly on my rotation. So I'm really excited for that documentary coming out here at the end of the month. That's right, uh, Thursday, September 28th, and October mm-hmm. Sunday, October 2nd in theaters. It, it's uh, they have a second date now, hey. Yeah, I think at Country Hills Theater for local listeners, uh, they said Sunday, October second, okay, as well. So a couple chances to see it. Check your listings, I guess. I might have to go see it twice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. But, if I really like it, I definitely will. But like, just something about his vocals are incredible to me, and so obviously to so many other people too. But I can't believe how long he's been relevant for. Like he was with like Ronnie and the Redcaps back in the fifties. I know. I read his autobiography. The guy's been going forever. So you have very broad tastes like me, you know, from from Rainbow and Dio all the way up to the newest, greatest underground death metal and deathcore mm-hmm. bands. So you're very broad-minded as well. Some people are only like, I'm, I'm only, I have a buddy, he's, we call him the thrash master. He only listens to thrash metal, <laughs> nothing else. And even if it's not very good thrash, he's like, that's not pure enough. You know, it's like that's, <laughs> for 20 years, the only thing he listens to is thrash. I'm like, I would get so bored. <laughs> yeah, I like to change things up and um like i went through a little bit of a black metal phase um yeah just like everything everything has its place and sometimes things just click more so i'm not always in the whole deathcore side of things i kind of move back and forth it depends on your mood too right some yeah, days totally. you're in a more sing-song mood some days you're like i hate the world and i just need some black metal you know <laughs> and one of the genres of music that I've moved away from since starting this podcast is I really used to like rap, but now it's like I, I listen to like a handful of songs here and there. And now I just, it's just not something I enjoy as much. Yeah. Have you heard that band Necro? Death um, rap? No, uh, I may have heard of them, but it's one of those, one of those bands that I probably didn't listen to much. Yeah. It's kind of weird. It's like death metal with rap vocals. They're called Necro. Uh, kind of weird, sort of obituary style, but rapping vocals. Pretty interesting. heavy, pretty interesting. Yeah. Lots to check them out. Yeah, sure. Um, another band that's really jumped on my radar recently, and this is thanks to Dr. Wes Robertson. He's off of the Lingua Brutalica uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. I had him on the podcast a while back as well, and he mentioned Zeal and Ardor. Have you listened right, to it? Yeah, those those guys are popular right now. It's like some of those songs are incredible and just how they fused, I guess, like rock, blues, and black metal. It's just like, it's it's an incredible impact, I guess, on me. It was just like, how, how are these sounds coming together so well? I need to explore those guys a bit more. I'm not very familiar with them, but I have nothing but admiration and respect for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But on the same token, there are other bands that you listen to and you're like, I should be liking this, but it's not my thing really but it is what it is all subjective, right? 
Yeah, that's what we were saying earlier about Ghost and a handful of others. Yeah, just mm-hmm. you can't you can't like everything. It's impossible. <laughs> it really is. Again, if nothing else, it comes down to time. But speaking of um, trends and favorite bands and stuff, can you name a few bands maybe that you think like I'd say more recent bands that could be considered like pioneers in the future? You know, that's a good question. Um, and that almost brings us back to your early point where you're talking about the future of metal. And one of the n- negative points I had that I hesitated to mention a bit is that I'm not sure we're going to see too much more totally unique genre development mm. in metal. Um, it's almost to the point where it's some bands are just insane noise, right? Almost unlistenable. You get into some incredibly harsh industrial where it's so fast so many notes per second uh the vocals are just blurred that you can't go too much more extreme Mm -hmm. so there might be some really quirky things like you said you know jazz and metal getting fused together and that might uh develop a subgenre. but i'm not really seeing a lot of bands that are going to be that next amazing thing that break it open like we saw thrash bands the big four brought thrash up and then the death metal movement and then black metal and then new metal and things like that those were big pivotal moments for three or four years with big scenes where hundreds of bands would develop not well not hundreds maybe dozens would develop a sound and then grow and become popular and i'm just not i'm just not seeing it there's new bands that are doing the old styles very well but in terms of purely innovative new bands, I, I'm not hearing it, unfortunately. Hmm. So does the genre become stagnant as metal kind of peaked out um, at, at where it can go in terms of the framework of being extreme music? I mean, how many guitars do you need in a band? Five, six, that you could have a, a band with six guitarists, six, mm-hmm. seven string guitars doing stuff. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> how do you, how do you go? higher faster louder grosser sicker meaner mm-hmm. than than what already exists right yeah on all sides of the spectrum like um when it comes to i don't know making pig noises instead of using actual lyrics or yeah. screaming those insane highs and those extreme guttural lows like it's you're gonna be hard pressed chain like to match any of that or surpass it because it's already so far gone in either way that's true. I mean, I'm sure you heard bands when you were young thinking, oh my God, this is so heavy. How, how is nothing could be heavier than this, right? Yeah. And then five years later, there's a band that makes those guys sound like, like, you know, when I'm listening to obituary and stuff now, it's like, that's my easy listening in the shower in the morning. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, do, 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 singing along with the old chopped in half or whatever. And it's just, it's so slow and groovy, you know. But at mm-hmm. the time, it's like, oh, my God, this is so heavy. And my parents are like, what is that? You know, like, <laughs> hated it so evil, scary. Now it's like easy listening in metal, right? <laughs> I kind of had that same experience recently. Like like I said, I've been on this big tech deck, tech death kick as well, um, kind of leading up to Tech Trek 5. And then I went back and listened to some Mellow Death and I'm like, well, this is pleasant. <laughs> totally. You know, when In Flames and stuff came out, wow, this is heavy. And then you yeah. play Origin right after them. They're like, yeah. man, In Flames is so melodic and I can sing along. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so Joshua, it's been an awesome chat with you today. Um, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, oh, my pleasure. appear on the show. And I really hope to pick your brain again sometime soon because there's a lot of knowledge up there that I haven't got. So. 
I'd love to chat to you again, maybe a year down the road. We'll talk more about metal rules and some of the other projects and fun stuff and, uh, and have another visit. I'd be honored to be, to be back again. That sounds awesome. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time on Gyro Nation Metal. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. The podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you would like to support this podcast, please consider checking out my Patreon. Thank you.